Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemnment, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and, the, and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Eliza. You may take your seats. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. If you're new, a warm welcome to you, whether you're skeptical of the Christian faith or if you've been following Jesus for a long time. We're really glad you're here. My name is Steve, and uh, this year we are walking through the Gospel of Matthew, one of the earliest biographies we have of Jesus' life. And the theme of Matthew is Jesus brings us into a better kingdom. Better kingdom. If you remember anything about Matthew, remember Jesus brings you into a better kingdom. In short, meaning when you follow Jesus— it's not that Jesus is this drawer that you just open up on Sunday or maybe when you read your Bible in the morning, as important as, the, as those things are, but he brings you into an entirely new reality where you have a real communion with God and by which all of life changes for you, how you view relationships, how you view your career, everything changes. And so that's what we mean by Jesus brings us into a better kingdom, which will culminate when Jesus makes the whole world new. And what we're seeing at this point in the story is this wraps up a section of Matthew. And this is the section of Matthew where we see people responding to Jesus's ridiculous claims. And we have people who hate Jesus, and we have people who are running to Jesus. And I thought about this because uh, Kelsey and I took a little vacation this past week, and while we were there, I watched movie Creed. I feel like most people over 40 like the Rocky series, but I decided to you know, I give Creed a go, and you know, so it's this, it's in the Rocky universe, this story about this underdog boxer, and so in this story, you have this really eager young man, and he wants Rocky, this now old, retired, but legendary boxer, to train him. He's like, come on, Rocky, train me, come on, man, why don't you train me? And finally, Rocky meets him in the gym, and I wish I could impersonate Sylvester Stallone, it would just be embarrassing, but he essentially tells him, he's like, all right, man, if we do this, I'm in. But my question for you is, are, are you in? Because you're going to get knocked down hard. You're going to get knocked down again. And if you're going to give up, then what are we even doing here? And this ties into Jesus because 
kind of like Rocky, Jesus isn't the best salesman. Like it seems like often people run from him more than they stick with him because Jesus wants to make sure that any of his followers have a clear-eyed view of the challenges that are going to come when they walk with him. And so he knows that if you just come into this with, you know, rosy colored glasses, inevitably I'm going to have teachings that really rub you the wrong way. Life is going to hit you in a way that you're going to question, why would Jesus let this happen? I mean, if you're not ready for it, then you're going to give up. So similar to how Rocky tells this young man, Creed, it's going to be really hard, but I'll be with you every step of the way. Jesus says the same thing here. And so the outline for this passage, we'll, we'll look at it this way. Jesus, he starts off with three challenges to anyone who would follow him and enter his kingdom. So three challenges, and then he gives a promise and an invitation. So three challenges from Jesus, and then a promise, and then last, an invitation from Jesus, okay? Uh, so first, the three challenges that Jesus gives the people in this story, and therefore he gives to us. So starting at the top in verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, that's Jesus, saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. So this wraps up the section where Jesus is creating a stir. He's stepped onto the scene, and he's giving his stump speech, which is the kingdom of God is at hand. Something new has fundamentally changed. A new reality is breaking in, and with it, hope, and you're invited. And he heals the sick. He raises the dead. He claims to be God. And you can't keep up this kind of activity without ruffling a few feathers, especially the people, the religious leaders who you're stealing influence from, the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, throughout chapter 12, they've been trying to trap Jesus verbally in front of his followers to get some influence back. And to their credit, they were trying to make sure they followed the law, followed the scriptures, which they didn't think Jesus was doing. But finally, because Jesus, he has such a deft way of outmaneuvering anyone and deftly, you know, just turning back people's accusations back on themselves, they get irritated. And in a final act of exasperation, they essentially say, prove it. Fine, prove it. And that's what they mean here by, we wish to see a sign. A sign in this context means an undeniable like message from heaven that you are God. You are the person you say you are. Healings, whatever. Great teaching, we don't care. Prove it. And so Jesus, knowing that you ever talk with somebody and you know that, okay, like it doesn't matter what rational argument I give you, I give you. You're just, you're not going to agree with me or you're not going to see things clearly. That's what Jesus does. He knows it's ultimately not about the evidence and so he, it looks like he takes a hard left turn, but he compares the Pharisees to Jonah. And he says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah, there in verse 39. So Jonah, he's an Old Testament prophet. You can read about him in the book of Jonah. And God comes to him and he says, I want you to travel to Nineveh. It's an evil city. Preach to it. Jonah gets moody. He says, no. He runs in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. God causes a giant fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah says, okay, whatever, God, I'll do it. The fish spits Jonah back on a dry land. He goes to Nineveh. He hates the city. He hates the people. He gives an eight-word sermon in English. It's five words in Hebrew, and it's all fire and brimstone. And the people of Nineveh, the whole city, they repent. <laughs> they actually repent and turn to God. And so Jesus gives this example because he wants the people in front of him to feel the weight of this comparison. Okay, so you have Jonah who preaches to pagans. Jesus is preaching to God's own people. Jonah gives an eight-word sermon that's fire and brimstone. This whole place is going down. Jesus has been with these people for three years with so much, yes, he gives warnings, but also kindness and clarity. 
Jonah doesn't have any miracles. He just has his little sermon that he keeps yelling. Jesus heals people. He raises the dead. And most of all, Jonah's just a dude. And Jesus is God's very son. And so Jesus is saying, guys, you're being shown such kindness, such clarity. And yet you continue to yell, prove it, because nothing is good enough. And then he puts the nail in the coffin here with this comparison of Jonah being in the belly of the fish. So verse 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So this is a foretelling of his resurrection. Just as Jonah went down, but he stayed alive, and then he was brought back up, Jesus will actually die, go into the heart of the earth when he's buried, and then he will rise again. And so what, what he's saying here is you've already been shown a lot of many signs and great teaching, but the greatest sign, my resurrection, is yet to come, and still most of you aren't going to believe me. And he's making a point here that should humble every single person in the room, whether you count yourself a believer or not. And the principle he's giving is that the more knowledge you have, the more God holds you responsible to act on that knowledge. And this should, this should challenge both the, the skeptic and the Christian. And so if you're here and you're, you're a skeptical person, um, maybe wrestling with doubts, or you, you, don't, you don't follow Jesus at all, what Jesus is saying here is, well, there, yes, there are many rational, sociological, existential, philosophical, historical reasons to follow me. But if you're looking for a sign from heaven to know that I'm really who I say I am, the sign has been, always has been, and always will be my resurrection from the dead. And Jesus, he's the only religious founder, who, well, every religious founder has died, including Jesus, but he's the only religious founder who actually raised from the dead, proving that he can do what he says he can do, give us hope in the face of death. And the, the resurrection, it says, you know, we're not going to go into it right now, but it's as historically reliable a fact as we can know anything else from history. And so just a, a question Jesus is posing here to you is, yes, while there are, like, questions are good, we've been seeing this a lot in this series, however, you just have to ask yourself, if the resurrection isn't compelling data for me, then what will be? And maybe just be honest about like what information or evidence will be enough for you to follow Jesus. So there's a challenge there to the skeptic, but uh, Christians, you're not off the hook either. Okay, because remember there's this principle of God holds us responsible to act with the knowledge we have, or as Jesus puts it in Luke 12:48, to whom much is given, much is required. Meaning, are you saved by free grace? Yes, absolutely. Right? But just like a, a good father, God grows us in character. And so if like me, especially I think if you're like me, somebody who was raised in the church, you've heard a lot of sermons, you've read a lot of Christian books, you know a lot about the gospel and God's commands, there is a higher responsibility we have to act according to what we know. So you should be People should see you being more patient, more forgiving, more gentle toward enemies, less prone to use your energy and focus for yourself, right, as opposed to, as opposed to using it for other people. 
This is even more true for leaders in the church. Okay? As James will put it, not many of you should be teachers because you'll be judged with greater strictness because we're always learning things to teach. So as an example, uh, Andrew and I just, we recently watched a lecture series on how Philippians 1 through 3 uh, teaches us to treat the church with the humility and affection that Jesus does. So now, sorry, Andrew, but now me and Andrew are held, like we're now more, because now we have this knowledge and we're more responsible to act with that knowledge. And so this should, this should humble us. So when you see people like the Pharisees or see people outside the church, rather than doing what's so easy to just point the finger, well, you're not doing this and you're behaving this way, what we should do is look within and say, Holy Spirit, help me to live in accordance with these things that I've heard and read a thousand times and yet I'm just refusing to do. Okay, so that, that's, that's the first point. Jesus challenges what we do with knowledge. We just, yeah, okay, I know that, but I'm not actually acting on it. Or do I act in accordance with the knowledge that I have? Okay, that's, that's his first challenge. And then it just continues to get pretty intense. So next we see he challenges your, your life system, is how I'm putting it. Hopefully it'll make sense. But like basically, what is it the, what's at the animating center of your life? What drives you? And here we see this parable of the unclean spirit in verse 43 through 45. And essentially you have this evil spirit who leaves a person and the spirit, uh, and then the person, they tidy up their house. The house is a metaphor for themselves. So they make their life, they make themselves swept clean and tidy. And then the spirit, he's in this arid, dry place. He gets bored. He goes back to the house that he was. And he says, oh, it's empty. There's nothing in here. It's, it's all tidy. He calls seven of his buddies. Hey, this looks like a cool place to reside. And then they, go, they all go in. What, what in the world is this about? And actually, the more I chewed on this, there's a host of applications. But let me try to distill it as best as I can. And then if you, if you feel like I didn't do a satisfactory job, we can talk about it after service. So first, in context, we started this last week. This is a conversation Jesus has been having. A, a demon was cast out. And they're having this conversation about A, who is Jesus? And B, they're talking about power to change. How does a human being change? And when Jesus says this person sweeps up their home and makes it nice and tidy or puts it in order, what he's saying is there are a lot of ways you can better yourself and go about self-improvement without God. Okay, so there are plenty of religions, philosophies, podcasters, influencers who can help you reduce your anxiety, become more disciplined, uh, work on your, your physical fitness and well-being, right? Work, work well in your career. So with, with, this, with this metaphor, he's actually saying you don't actually need God to go about self-improvement. You don't. And I'm sure many of you just know in your own life, people who are very disciplined, moral people who may be atheists or, or they're not Christians. But with this whole thing at the end where he says the eight spirits, the one and then his seven buddies, go back into the person in the state is worse than they were before. So here's one way to, here's one way to think about it, both for those who would say they, they don't know God and for those who do know God. So for those who don't know God, he's saying there is a particular danger for good people, like people who have their lives nice and tidy, as it were. You know, they're generally moral. They're generally kind to other people. They generally have their life together. Remember, he's talking to the Pharisees, people you'd see them. You're like, wow, you're really devout. You're a really good person. And this makes you blind to Jesus because Jesus didn't primarily come to give you a self-improvement project. He didn't come to actually fundamentally make you a better person, even though he does work on your character. The reason he fundamentally came 
is to bring you into right relationship with God, where you have deep communion with him. And then over time, you grow in character. And there's a difference there, right? Just making you a better person like every other religion versus bring you into right relationship with God, which is what every person needs no matter how good. And so w- one thing, we'll, we'll keep saying this throughout Matthew, it's usually the good people who miss Jesus. Because like, all right, I'm good. I'm fine. I don't need help. If he's just another teacher telling me how to be better, I don't need that. And it's usually those who don't have their houses in order that flock to Jesus. Okay, so that, that's, a, that's a challenge for those who, who may be exploring the faith. And for those of you who count yourself Christians, note this this comment here where he says he, the, the evil spirit finds the house empty, meaning Jesus isn't at the center of it. Okay, Jesus isn't at the, he's not the animating center of this person's life. And there are many ways as Christians where we can, even if we know, yes, the main reason Jesus came was to bring me into a relationship with God, blah, blah, blah. In the day-to-day, we don't put God at the center. And just a, a practical way that maybe to, to help ground this a little bit that you can think about is if Jesus isn't at your center, but the way you tidy your life for yourself and before other people, especially in this area, is how smart you are, how competent you are, how accomplished you are. Then you're going to continue oscillating back and forth between an inferiority complex and a superiority complex, which are basically two sides of the same coin. So inferiority complex, we're always thinking, wow, I'm not as beautiful as that person. I'm not as accomplished as that person. I'm not as smart or intelligent as that person. And everything is about comparing other people or their situations or their abilities to you. And you get down on yourself. Right? Because what's making your house or yourself tidy is your ability to be smart and accomplished. Or if you're one of the 1% who is the smartest and most accomplished in this area, there tends to be a, a smugness about you toward other people, an impatience toward other people right, who aren't like you. But when you have Christ— at the center, it, it gives you a it gives you a freedom. It gives you a self forgetfulness where suddenly every situation stops being in rel- relative to you, and now now you're freed to work, right? To improve, to become more disciplined. Most importantly, to love other people. So this is the second challenge Jesus gives: is what is at the center of your motivation? What's at the center of your motivation as you think about raising your children? Is it for them to become successful, safe, and happy? or fundamentally for them to really know God who alone gives them hope in the face of death and the transcendence that every person seeks for. Okay, so that's number two. Jesus challenges our life system. Number three, he challenges family. He challenges how we think about family, and that's in verse 46 to 50. So this whole teaching has been in a crowded house, it looks like, and as he's speaking to the people, his mother and his brothers, Jesus had a mother and brothers, they stand outside and they want to speak with him. And he replies to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Forever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. First of all, if I ever said that with my mom in earshot, she'd be like, well, psh, boy. <laughs> you know? but what's he, this is revolutionary, even more so in this culture. What's he doing? What he is saying is, when you come into relationship with me, you now come into relationship with, you now have new brothers and sisters, the people in the church. So it's not just justification, God declares you righteous, right? But there's adoption, where you're now brought into a new family, which means is your attitude and as you treat other people in the church 
you no longer treat them as if they were a family, but you treat them as family. And I recently read this book. I'm in a book club. Pastors need recreational activities too. And in the book we were reading, there's this line where we were talking about it. And one of the characters says, you know, I've realized that if you read the same few dozen books as somebody else, it creates a bond more binding than blood. Like, that rings true. Even, like, when I went to Kenya, one of our teammates, our team members who I didn't know very well, on the plane ride, plane ride we realized we had read a few of the same books, fiction and nonfiction, and then suddenly, like, giddy middle schoolers were talking about the books for the whole rest of the plane ride, right? Because it, it creates a bond. And what Jesus is saying is, when you come into relationship with me, your relationship with other men and women in the church is now more binding than blood. And so we almost actually made this paragraph that broke it in the series to be its own sermon because there's so much here. But at minimum, we could, this has so many massive implications for marrieds and singles and just our life in the church as a whole. So in broad brush, just consider if we were to live this out, while holding to the, I mean, vital importance of marriage, right? And for husbands and wives, if they made a vow to commit to one another with covenant fidelity, we need that all the more in our current culture. While holding that, do you, do you think there'd be maybe less of a sharp dividing line between marrieds and singles? You know, marrieds in their nuclear family home over here, mainly maybe seeing other married couples or maybe singles on Sunday or maybe one night a week? Or would, there, would that line be more porous between marrieds and singles? Would, would married people invite singles on their vacations more or invite them into their holiday traditions more? I'm not saying this is law laid down in Scripture, but these are the kinds of questions we need to ask. And thinking about not just now broader than marrieds and singles, just think about our attitude toward the church. What does this do when it comes to church attendance, group attendance? What about the worship service? Is the worship service an event? We pop in and then pop out and retreat back to the safety of our house, which as an introvert, amen, I've thought that way for years. Or is it the place where along with worshiping God, we go to, we arrive early and we stay late because we're with family. And if you're sitting there thinking like, I don't know what I think about this. This is making me really uncomfortable. That's actually really good news because now you're, now you're beginning to hear Jesus. So he, he challenges how we, how we envision family okay, in addition to what we do with knowledge and our, our life system. So three challenges from Jesus. He's intense, right? And now he gives us a promise and an invitation. And they're both here in this final section about the mothers, brothers, and sisters. So in verse 49, it says that Jesus stretches out his hand toward his disciples, and he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Something really beautiful is happening here. So when it says he stretches out his hand toward his disciples, it's less pointing, but literally it reads, he puts his hand out over everybody sitting at his feet, which is an idiom for blessing them. So what he does is he, he reaches out his hand and he blesses all those just sitting quietly at his feet and he commissions them. He says, the, you are my brothers and sisters. And then he says, for whoever does the will of my, and they're the ones doing the will of my father in heaven, which is fascinating because 
They're just sitting there. And so what he's saying, when you do something as ordinary as sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to him, with the simplicity of a child, Jesus says, you are made an important part in this story. For now, you are, you are closer to me than blood. I, who's the very son of God. And I'm so proud to be your older brother. And, you know, when I was in grade school, my, I had an older brother who was four years, than, four years older than me, which is a, a lot when you're in grade school. And he was way cooler than me. And I still remember so many times when he'd be with a group of his friends, which were always the popular people. And, you know, if they'd be over, we'd be out somewhere. And I would try to scurry by the room because I was, and still am, I was just really shy. And I just didn't want them to, to see me. And he'd say, oh, hey, Steve, come on in. And he'd call me in and he'd look at all of his friends and he'd say, this is Steve. He's my brother. I'd so proud to be his brother, and then all of a sudden everybody would be like, oh, cool, man, and they'd, they'd bring me in, and they'd, they'd teach me how to do cool stuff, and they'd play sports with me, and this, this made my world. And for you, you, you may have never had a sibling or even a family member who was proud of you, but even if you do or you did, here you have Jesus, how much more amazing, pure, and powerful, saying, I am so proud that you're my sister, that you're my brother. And this isn't a sentimental promise. This isn't a promise that's fragile and he may take away because Jesus was so committed to this that it's what he went to the cross for. And here we see in John chapter 19, as Jesus is bound hand and foot to the cross, it says that Jesus looks and he sees his mother and his dear friend John. Can you imagine? They're right there. And it says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved, John standing there, he said to his mother, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home to care for her. And there it is. Like some of his final words, making his mom and disciple family as he makes them family with himself and so it is for you and I and that's the promise and so in light of this the fact that we have this promise of Jesus that we actually get up we're closer to him in many ways here than in this story his his own mother and brothers the invitation is to be with Jesus be with Jesus maybe We'll go through how you're maybe doing right now, okay? And then also through the well-worn practice throughout the ages of scripture meditation and prayer. And this is why, this is a big reason why our theme this year is multiply with Jesus, okay? So multiply, developing new leaders and disciples. That's what we saw in community group multiplying. But with Jesus is the more important part because none of the other stuff matters unless we're with Jesus. And as a church, no matter how big or small we remain, no matter what we, you know, quote, accomplish, no matter what we do for the city, no matter how many people come to faith, which I hope are many, I'd far rather have a church who every single member loves being with Jesus, being counted as his sister or his brother, as opposed to a church who's just doing, 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 but it's all with our heads, and we don't actually know him. And 
in my own life, like one of the practices I, I started uh, adding to my morning devotion is normally I would read my Bible, pray really quick, and then anxiety is already down, like pounding at the door. So I just you know, open my laptop and I'm off to the races. But more recently I've started, I read, I pray for longer, try to pray more honestly. And then after that, as if Jesus is saying, you know, where are you going? And I just, then I sit with him in the quiet and just think about everything that he's just promised to me, promised to me in his word or challenged me on, remembering how much he cares for me, how much he likes me, probably, well, he does even more than I like myself. And that's what my hope is for, for each of you as we grow in this as a community. And I came across this story. It was an interview with, uh, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, I'm not a huge film person, Jonah Hill. And so Jonah Hill, he's an actor, now director, and he was sharing a story of when he was on set as an actor working with Martin Scorsese. I think that's how you pronounce his last name, who's a, a legend, right, in the filmmaking business. And Jonah had this scene where he just had to say a few lines, but he couldn't get it. They did like 20 or 30 shoots. He just couldn't get it. He was, as it, you know, the more he couldn't do, he's in front of everybody. It just made it more and more nervous. He's like, oh my gosh, Scorsese is watching me and I'm a, I'm a fraud. I'm a fool. Finally, Scorsese just cuts everything. He says, cut. Everybody, take a break. He's like, Jonah, come over here. And so Jonah walks over and Scorsese is sitting in a chair. He says, hey, sit down, kid. And sits down. And then Martin says nothing for 30 minutes. He just, he pulls out a newspaper and starts reading it. And Jonah says, you know, over time, I suddenly, I noticed myself beginning to relax. And then after about 30 minutes of this obnoxious silence, Martin was like, all right, let's do it again. And first take, he just, he nailed it. And he was reflecting on, like, what happened there. And his reflection was something to the effect of, I think there's something when a young up-and-comer is just in the presence of somebody great. And you realize they just want to be with you that changes you. And so how much more so with Jesus, when you are with Jesus, he changes you, not to become a better actor, right, but to become a a whole new person who you're actually more caring toward those in your relational orbit. You're more stable. You're less self-absorbed. Most of all, you get him, And so after all of these challenges, Jesus, with the promise of you're secured as my sibling, is just to be with Jesus, and as you do, enjoy being loved by him and changed by him.